Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james if a friend asks how you're doing and you say i'm okay when the truth is i don't want my problems to burden anyone or you say hang it in there because if i ask for help they'll just think i'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Mark Laurie sold diapers.com to Amazon for $575 million. Then he started a new e-commerce site to compete with Amazon called Jet.com. And then he sold that for over $3 billion to Walmart. He recently left Walmart. And now the guy is starting so many different things, it's hard to keep track. He wants to create a completely unique, built, self-sustained city. So we talk about this as a, a new concept of building his own city that, uh, and you'll hear his thoughts on that. He's invested in a flying cars startup and the technology is closer than I thought with that. He bought the Minnesota Timberwolves and I have some questions about that that led to some ideas for me about startups I could do. He also started a new company called Wonder, which is like the next step ahead of Uber Eats. And I also got some ideas when I heard him talk about this. So. Listen up, and here he is. So, so Mark, lots of things to talk about. I'll jump right into it. 
first, obviously, the city concept is fascinating. Tolosa is your idea of building a completely unique kind of self-sustainable uh, city. Do you want to describe this a little why you wanted to do it? And then I have a ton of questions. Yeah, sure, sure. So it wasn't one day that I just woke up and said, you know, I think it would be cool to build a city. This is not, it was never from the beginning, any sort of uh, like a real estate project or it would be cool to build a city. It really started with this problem that, you know, I think everyone's pretty familiar with in America, which is the divide between equality is getting worse than it ever has been. And just felt like, do we have capitalism right? And started thinking about it. And I read this book, Progress in Poverty by Henry George, a late 19th century economist. Yes. And I was just fascinated. I was struck by it. It really hit a chord with me. If you think about capitalism, it's, I think it's a great economic model, but it needs to have some guardrails. You know, you, you saw what happened, you know, before we had antitrust laws against monopolies. Capitalism and monopolies don't work well together. Workers suffered big time. Mark, can I ask about that? Like, yeah, obviously you can view Amazon.com right now as a, a, an e-commerce sort of monopoly, even though, you know, you have a great experience. So you're the person to talk to. Jet.com was able to start by you and compete enough to be, you know, noticed by a Walmart and essentially, you know, became Walmart's e-commerce arm. So do you feel in today's society, innovation and technology move so fast that monopolies could be undercut? Yeah, I mean, listen, you only need one other company to compete, you know, and be a formidable competitor for it not to be a monopoly. I think you've got that in Walmart. So I, I don't think workers, you know, have only one option. If they're working in the fulfillment centers there at Amazon and they're not happy or not feeling like they're getting paid fair wages, they can go work at Walmart. Like that wasn't the case back, you know, in the 1800s before we had antitrust and there were true monopolies where you really only had one place to work. The world wasn't as mobile as it is today, and you were, you lived where you worked, and there was one company that dominated, and basically you had no choice. So, are monopolies like if, if if monopoly is an underpinning of what you're looking at economically? Is that, or is the danger of monopolies in a capitalist society as great as they were a hundred years ago? The danger is still there, absolutely, but we have antitrust laws now that will break companies up and prevent monopolies from forming. So, my point really was that. Without that sort of guardrail, capitalism wouldn't be a great economic model. It is because the guardrails that we put in place around it to encourage competition. One of the things that struck me reading that book was this idea of land ownership and how there's a finite amount of land and, and landowners essentially have sort of this silent monopoly over the property that they own. And really without putting any work in, without taking any risk, put any capital at risk or anything like that, land appreciates when communities are formed on the land, when tax dollars are invested in infrastructure to increase the value of the land. And I just fundamentally thought, well, what if it were different? I'm not saying that people shouldn't own land. People should definitely own land. But what if it were different in that if we started when the land was worthless with a community foundation, basically representing the people owning the land, and when the land increased in value because communities formed and people you know, started their lives there, then that land appreciation would be captured by the foundation. It would create an endowment and then use that money, sort of like a, like a sovereign wealth fund to basically provide incredible social services for the people that live there, because it's the people that live there that form these communities that gave value to the land. And then once the land appreciation was captured and it was a normal 
sort of thriving uh, city that the land, the community foundation would sell off the land. So people would be able to own land, but the community would capture that rapid appreciation that goes from land being worthless to being worth you know, something, being a, a thriving city. It's almost like viewing land as like a startup. So, so most of the value in a startup happens in those first years where yes. economic value is created from an, an initial idea. And then when it goes public, it, on yeah. average, it'll go 7 or 8% a year. You could sell it off to speculators and, and so on. Essentially, the idea. That's a great analogy. Absolutely great analogy. In fact, so the land in the desert, you know, like in Nevada, for example, is like two dollars $3,000 an acre. And if you were able to build a city of 5 million people, and like a legit city, just the day that 5 million people were living there, it was actually a real city. The land's going to be worth, you know, call it, I don't know, million dollars an acre. So, you know what I mean? Like in, in the city itself, that land appreciation, which could amount to as much as a trillion dollars worth of value created for the community foundation that basically bought this worthless land. Imagine having a trillion dollar endowment earning $50 billion a year to basically give back to the citizens in the form of like incredible education, medical care, affordable housing, basically getting the social services of a socialist democratic country without having to increase taxes. So you have the same sort of tax structure you have today in America that people, that people love relative to social democratic countries, but the same, if not better, social services. So that's, that's what got me really excited. There is a way and a path forward to have both, to have you know, a more equitable city population you know where people have a great foundation without having to charge people 70 80 percent marginal tax rates to pay for it like it's this is a great solve and so that's what really inspired me to want to build the city and then as we started thinking about wow if we're going to build a city from scratch five million people let's make it the most sustainable city in the world because we know we can from scratch you know and and make it run on 100 renewable energy and zero waste and really kind of like take a leap forward on a sustainability front, how do we use 90% less water um, than we use today? And there's lots of technologies that exist today that are just not being implemented in cities because the cities already have infrastructure. It's too expensive to rip it out and put a new infrastructure in. But if you started from scratch, you can do some really cool things. It reminds me just of how internet infrastructure developed around the world, like places that did not already have good cellular infrastructure, for instance, originally, like let's say South Korea, ended up with much better internet infrastructure because if we, US can't start from scratch, our infrastructure was built in the 50s for the telephone network, but a, a, a country, smaller country or, or a country like you know South Korea suddenly was able to have 5G without having 3G first. I'm, I don't know if that's true, but something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the same exact uh, analogy. That's perfect. Yeah. So here, here's a question I have is, and I, I love this idea. So there's a couple of questions like just on, it, it sounds like first you would open it up to a community where the community would equally own the land or how would an initial ownership work? Yeah. So we started a, a community foundation. It's called the Telosa Community Foundation. The foundation is going to um, you know, get donations and purchase and acquire 200,000 acres of land for call it $500 million in round numbers. And foundation would encourage real estate investors, builders, people to move there and sort of encourage and help, you know, form the foundation of the city. And if 5 million people move there, 
like I said, the foundation would have all this, this land that it would be selling off at a huge premium and create a sovereign city endowment. And how would the people moving there, how would they make money or, or accumulate, let's say, wealth or whatever? Yeah, so there would be jobs that would be a reason why people would want to move there. They'd move there for the incredible social services, the education, the healthcare, um, which would be like nowhere else in the U.S. And also the city will be sustainable, have amazing, you know, uh, parks and restaurants. I mean, we're starting with people at the center. So this is not like one of these sort of cities of the future you see where it's all tech driven and seems cold. The city has to have a soul and it has to have, you know, um, uh, it has to be a place that people want to live, want to raise a family. That's what we're focused on. And so a lot of cities, I mean, the history of cities, cities sort of grow organically. Like, let's say a city like New York City starts up and it's a great port for goods coming into the country and goods leaving the country. So people move in and they decide they need a certain kind of food. So they start restaurants or they start grocery stores or they start whatever. It seems to happen organically. How would how would like uh, how would you be able to know to do the urban planning? Like, OK, now we need this many restaurants, this many laundry services, this many hospitals and so on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really big challenge and there's a chicken and egg. But cities grow organically because there's like no incentive. There's no sort of, um, you know, big grand opening of a city where people all decide to move there at a single point in time. The way we're going to sort of put this together is we've got a because we're able to create what could be a trillion dollar endowment for the city. We're going to take some of that money and invest in in you know a, what any company would do in sort of a B two C marketing campaign, which is to drum up interest from people that want to live here before it's even open, and basically have an opening day of the city. It'll be the first center of the city will be for fifty thousand people. And the goal is to have 50,000 people move in on a single, I say single day, but maybe over the course of a month, you know, where doctors and teachers show up and then people start layering in. But basically 50,000 people in a very short period of time all move to the city to sort of solve that chicken and egg problem. There needs to be jobs there. So they're the, the, the jobs of uh, like the restaurants and hotels and all the services, obviously, doctors and lawyers and teachers and things. But one of the big driving factors early on is going to be entrepreneurs. So as part of this Telosa Community Foundation, there's going to be a venture arm that's basically going to invest in entrepreneurs that have really cool business ideas that want to basically build their idea in the city of Telosa. So it doesn't, it could be a it could be a global business, it could be a tech company, it has not it doesn't have to be specific to the city of Telosa, but simply moving there getting office space and starting to incubate your startup and hire people is going to be one of the foundational pieces of how we get to 50,000 quickly. And then how would you go, how would the city be governed? Just like any other city, it would have a, it would have a government. We're going to do our best to try and, you know, make the government more transparent, but we're not, I mean, we're a community foundation. That's sole mission is to increase the value of the fund and give it back to the citizens in the form of, of great services. So there'll be just like there would elected officials and a government, and it would run like any other city, but you would have this other piece called the foundation that would work closely with the government because the foundation would have so much money that it wants to invest back into the citizens. And it would be a little bit like it is today with, with the charity. 
sitting with the government and, and trying to figure out where best to put the funds. It's so interesting because it goes along in a weird way. It goes along with what's happened uh, in the past two years with that we've seen with COVID, where cities have drastically different policies than other cities, and they get to decide about different mandates or what businesses stay open, what businesses get closed, and and all of this is, has been with good intentions in the interest of public health. But it almost makes you wonder with these self-contained cities, they could control essentially access and what are the policies for public health? And you even have to apply, let's say, to go to a city or maybe you have to in the city of the future, you might have to apply to live in a certain city as opposed to just moving there. Do you see something like that related to these concepts if there's a lot of them? I mean, I could see that happening somewhere else. And I, I basically encourage people to test new models. I think we haven't done enough testing around cities in this country. Like it's been pretty stagnant. There's not, yeah. hasn't been a lot of innovation. So I encourage people to try other models, but in this particular case in Telosa, our values to be open, fair, and inclusive. So by definition, it's not a closed city. It's not, you know, going to be an application. Anybody can move there. It's meant to be fair, equitable, uh, inclusive, and open. You know, that's it's it's really and and the only thing I'd say, which is counter to this a little bit, is the first fifty thousand people. In order for the city to be truly inclusive and open, it's important to have a diverse group of people that are this first 50,000 to basically get the snowball rolling. And so we are thinking through how we ensure that the first 50,000 are diverse and not a certain homogeneous group of people that you know, gravitate toward it. And so there might be some sort of application process for the first 50,000 just to kick things off like you would at any university building a diverse class of of students, um, but but that's very complicated. It comes with its own set of issues and things. But it seems better than letting it just go and having it be not diverse and not inclusive from the outset. It's also really interesting, you know, that you know I'm I'm somewhat familiar with Henry George and his principles about the value of most of the values of society gets built up by using the land for, for some real purpose, like whether it's mining resources or building a factory or building companies or building social services, whatever. And this was, of course was in the 1800s. And I'm wondering if the 1900s changes the view a little bit where land became kind of, let's say, equal in value to good ideas. So you look at Silicon Valley, the value of the land appreciated but the value of the companies created in Silicon Valley appreciated a lot more. And so I'm wondering if you miss out on some of the other value created in this city when you focus just on the land. Well, I think that's a really good point. It's something we're thinking through right now. Like since the community foundation of Tolosa is kicking off the building of the city, there are opportunities early on for Tolosa to uh, the community foundation to make investments in some startups that could help the city blossom and create incredible equity value too that accrues back to the citizens. So it's not, it doesn't have to be just land. We are looking for way, other ways to create value. The mission though, of course, is to try and create value on behalf of the people that live there so that we can create this incredible virtuous cycle where people trust the foundation who live in the city and they see all the good that the foundation is doing in terms of education and healthcare and all these amazing things that people decide in the community to donate to the foundation. So right now, you don't really donate to your city. That's called taxes. People hate that. People donate to schools. They donate to hospitals. 
but we'd love a world in which they donate to the community in which they live through the foundation, knowing that the foundation is going to make it a higher quality of life for their kids and their grandkids and future generations, that there's that trust there. That's when things really start to look interesting from a new model for society perspective. The other thing maybe we learned about cities during the past two years was that take a city like New York City, and I had this conversation with, with Eric Adams, and now he's the, the mayor of the city. The economic velocity of money in most cities went way down during COVID, obviously, because people didn't leave their homes. So when they made a dollar of income, they didn't go down to the local newspaper store or the local deli or the local laundromat. They they made a dollar and the dollar went to Seattle because they bought something, they bought diapers off of Amazon, for instance. You know, one idea that I was thinking of, and I wonder if this is is relevant, is whether it's a digital currency or however you do it, you create kind of like, let's say in the example of New York City, a New York City dollar, where you the way you mine additional dollars is by spending money, New York City dollars in New York City. So you kind of encourages people, sort of becomes a virtual cycle of encouraging people to buy local. And I wonder if something like that should be put in place in a city like you're describing so that people don't just move there, but buy everything elsewhere. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting concept. Um, we'll definitely uh, think about that. We're, we're getting ideas like this from, from, you know, smart people like yourself. And we're sort of like just putting them into sort of a, uh, a holding pen right now to just sort of start going through them and start thinking about whether it makes sense. We're still a long way off, like making a decision like that, but that's a great idea and something that we need to consider for sure. Yeah, because initially, if you don't have that many services other than the great social services, you're going to be competing with, you're going to be competing with remote e-commerce sites for the hard-earned money that go arrives in the city, and you'd rather that money stay in. And I would, this is a big source of income inequality now. Is like you go to a low-income neighborhood, the, the income arrives in the low-income neighborhood, and then it immediately leaves. Like it, people buy stuff at, do their laundry at the laundromat. The people in the laundromat live outside the lower income neighborhood and then the money's gone. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I get it. What would be the incentives for people to initially fund the project? Would it be donations? Like why would people donate initially? Yeah, d- the foundation, yeah, it will be a, a 501c3 you know, charity. And so, yeah, the, the initial dollars would be people that like myself that are going to make you know, big donations to this to see it happen, to really truly test, is there a better way? And that's really the incentive there. Is something like this happened before? I mean, there was there's um, what is it in in Saudi Arabia? Is there the Neom project? Neom, Neom, yeah. Is that off the ground? They're starting to build it already, but um, it's a little different in that they're taking a very sort of high tech angle. It's a little bit different than what we're thinking here, which is testing a new model for society and really starting with people at the center and values about being fair, open, inclusive, and sustainability. It's a little bit different. It is a new city, but I would say more technology focused. And what's the what's the timeline? Uh, for Tolosa? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're saying 2030 is sort of, that gives us what, about eight years to sort of get the land, get all the, the permitting, start putting shovels in the ground and start building and get it up and running where people could start moving in. Where are you thinking about? Have you identified locations? Uh, there's lots of different places, but I think it has to be somewhere where the land is very cheap and the government is open to us building a city of 5 million people. So when you start, put it through that lens, it starts to narrow the, the options. So we're, we're going through a process now. Yeah. I keep thinking like 
South Dakota, Montana, Nevada, Wyoming, places like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's got to be cheap land, 200,000 acres at a minimum. And we have to you know, have government support to build a city of 5 million people. So it's, yeah, there's not too many places where that is the case. So what do you think will be the total price tag to at least get the 50,000 in there? Uh, you mean to, to build the city for yeah. 50,000 people and the land? Yeah, about $10 billion. Okay. All right. So I think the Neom or the Neom project is talking in the hundreds of billions. Yeah. Well, well to, to build the entire city would be hundreds of billions, but sort of to get started, we think, yeah, somewhere 10, 12 billion to get started. But again, it wouldn't be at this point, the Telosa Community Foundation, it would be having, you know, uh, real estate developers and builders and things that would come in and, and build office space and restaurants and residential and things. And there has to be incentive for them to do it. They have to believe that there's going to be the people there. And so the foundation is going to really be focused on how do we ensure that we've got 50,000 people to move there to basically incentivize developers to want to build residences for the 50,000 people. And so can they pre-sell? There's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, and that's probably the biggest challenge in this project. But we've been thinking about it a lot. We think we have a good, a good plan to pull that off. And if you know the land is sort of community-owned or owned by the, the foundation, what if some people don't really pull their weight? Is there any dangers in that? Or maybe there's not really a danger in that. I don't know. No, we're not it's not down to the individual like that. It's the collective. It's the community itself that will benefit. It's the people and citizens that live there that will benefit. With that said, I do think you raise a good point. Should there be? And that's a great question. You know, Should there be some responsibility or accountability of the citizens that live there? That's a whole... Talk about that for days. Well, I guess you'll, if you tax the land, people have to do things to improve the land. So otherwise you lose your land back to the foundation. Yeah, well, the found again, it's no different than any city in America now. Like the land is owned by, you know, real estate developers, families, pe- people own land and they basically lease the land or build something on the land or sell the land. It's, it's not going to be any different. Like the land owner will be the foundation, but you can lease the land from the foundation and build something. You could lease it for, you know, the land for 50 years or something like it's not it's not going to constrain any sort of like capitalistic sort of investment in any any sort of real estate project no but i mean if if someone's not pulling their weight and they're leasing land eventually they'll lose the lease if they just are sitting on the land doing nothing and just just living off the social services of of the city and i hate to sound like ultra capitalistic with that <laughs> that almost sounds like extreme but I'm just thinking like you're going to have extremes on either end. Like you'll have people who are insanely productive and really drive the value of the city. And you'll have, you'll have, you'll have the person who's ranked 50,000th in terms of their, uh, you know, ability to improve the value of the land. Yeah. I feel, I mean, it raises a great question. These are great debates to have our view right now, but it could change is it's just simply like, just like it would be in New York city. You sort of, you pay the, the real estate, you pay the rent, you pay the real estate taxes, you can live there. Like there's no, you don't get yeah. kicked out or something, you know? That's how we're thinking about it right now. But it is true that if you're paying real estate and you're paying your uh, taxes, but you're not, you know, pulling your weight, that you're going to, it's not going to be good for you. You know what right. I mean? Right. Eventually things will get bad for you. Yeah. So I wonder if, it, I wonder if there's a smaller way to experiment, like, by a small community 
where the land has some value already, but you have a goal to put more value in there somehow. Like instead of 200,000 acres, 3,000 acres, you know, you buy a development. And so again, there's some value already. It's not $2,000 an acre. It might be $20,000 an acre or $100,000 an acre. But your goal would be to see if you could get this to $500,000 an acre, as, uh, building some, some microcosm of what you're thinking of. Or maybe there's kind of a, a size that too small is too small. I think that's what it is. We, we went through this and down this path. That it is, if it's small like that and you are paying sort of fair market value, it's very hard to drive up the price of the land in any meaningful way because there's a reason why people aren't like the land is worth what it's worth and people haven't moved there and people already know of the place. It's, it's a little bit, it's different than having a complete, it's like a startup going into a startup that's already like four years old and they're not like doing well. And you want to sort of come in and make it the next trillion dollar company. It's a lot harder than just saying clean slate because there's, there's a story to tell. It's a clean, it's new. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't exist. There's no way to get to it except flying into the airport or dr- driving, you know, hours into, like it's in, it's literally in the middle of nowhere it's the marketing story of of this being a new way of life different like you got you got to come see it and being able to have you know iconic buildings and restaurants and nightlife and parks and things that you're really like you can you can show people and be a reason to come there if you had some sort of like little edge city that's been floundering for a hundred years and, and to go in there and like buy the land and try and like rip out the infrastructure. And what do you do about all this stuff that's there already? That's not, you know, yeah. doesn't make sense. Or it's not sustainable. Or how do you build a city with all autonomous vehicles? Because one of the things in Telosa is what we're really considering is fully autonomous uh, vehicles, which make the roads more narrow which allows you to have more walkability, more bikeability. You'd have virtually no accidents, especially not you know, car to car. You wouldn't need street lights. You wouldn't need street signs. It'd be cheaper, be more efficient um, and safer. And like, how do you do that in an edge city? You know, there's things like that too. No, and I think, I think that is the future because look, ultimately all autonomous vehicles work better in an environment like you just said. And how do we do that in the US? We already have our, all our roads and they're yeah. not made for autonomous vehicles, at least at the moment. No, people don't fully, I think, appreciate, unless you really know autonomous vehicles, it seems like something way out into the future. Like, is that possible? Does that really work? If all the cars were autonomous, it's actually today, it's simple, it's easy. It's one of the easiest problems out there. It's only because having autonomous vehicles with cars on the road and having the roads not built for autonomous vehicles is why there's all this complexity. And even right. now we're making it work, but starting from scratch is, is actually a really simple problem. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. 
So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. You've invested in these vertical takeoff uh, and landing vehicles, like basically flying cars, right? So I, I'm not yeah. that familiar with the company you, you've you've invested in, but there's something like 300 of these flying car companies that are VC funded, and I it just that that number boggles my mind. Like where are it, where are these cars, and how are they ever going to regulate them? Like what's what's going on with this entire industry and with your company? Yeah, so my company that. Um... Uh, I invested in is called Archer. It's a public company. And yeah, I mean, we, we just recently hovered. It, it's basically like, think about it. It's like a passenger drone. So take a drone and make it big enough for people to sit in. That's sort of what it is. So it can, it can, you know, obviously go vertical, just like a drone and fly and come back down. It's, you know, safer than a helicopter. It's less noisy and it's much cheaper. There's a lot less moving parts. And I think, I do think that's the future of, of urban mobility. 
these what we call EVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing. And you said about being, um, you know, the FAA and stuff like that. You know, if you have a if it's piloted, then once the aircraft itself is certified, just the way the FAA certifies airplanes today, if you have a pilot in there, you can you can fly it. You know, as soon as the aircraft is certified, get a pilot and fly it. Like under FAA guidelines today, if you want it to be autonomous, which is certainly the future, that's going to be a lot longer. But they're going to be piloted very soon. Within inside of five years, we're going to be, you know, able to to go out and and and, and fly on one of these things. It's so funny because like autonomous vehicles, you read articles about, you see examples. Oh, these so many miles have been driven on the highway and so on. But like in five years, will I be able to get in this huge drone in my driveway, take off and like land at the local Walmart, buy some food, take <laughs> off and come home? Is that what's going to happen? Inside of five years, you will not be able to do that. What you will be able to do is be in New York City and you know, leave from a heliport, maybe a vertiport, you know, that's not where helicopters leaving from that's something separate and be yeah. able to go to Kennedy airport in 15 minutes and supposed to take in two hours by car. So yes, you will be able to do that within, within five years, for sure. You will be able to, if you want to fly in one of these EVTOLs, you'll be able to do it inside of five years. For that's sure. Amazing. That's amazing. So for sure, for sure. And personal though, personal in your home, that's, that would be cool. By the way, these things are pretty big. I mean, I can imagine a future where, they start getting you know tighter and tighter in terms of space, and then one day, if you have a big enough like you know yard, you could potentially you know do that, and there'll be places to land. But I mean, you, at that point, I, you're probably twenty years away from from something like that, at least because twenty. Years. I guess the batteries have to be a lot more efficient. Like you have to have yeah. really good batteries. So yeah, I mean the the batteries now. I mean they're we're able to go pretty good distance. But it's more just the size of it. If you saw the size of it, it's you know they've they've got you know wings. I guess you mean yeah. If the wings are shorter, you need higher, more battery power. So that to your point, yeah, that's that's the biggest issue. And so um, I'm very interested also in the other your your current your most current startup, uh, Wonder, which sort of uh, you can describe it in a second, but it sort of strikes me as a common uh, an integration or or a hybrid of ghost kitchens, you know, Uber Eats. And food trucks, basically. Yeah, we, I mean, I could see how it how it appears that way. We we don't really like to think of it in terms of like a food truck. It's a it's a fully integrated end to end system where we've basically created a platform to create next generation restaurant chains. So we're vertically integrated, and we basically uh, source and and prep the food in a central commissary in a in such a way that it allows somebody with with low skilled or, or low amount of training on a truck to basically be able to cook the food in just a few minutes in a high-speed impingement oven right outside somebody's door. But it's sort of an end-to-end -end system. It's not a food truck. There's no open flame. Everything happens very fast. And a lot of years of R&D has gone into creating the food in such a way combined with the programming of the oven to be able to cook, let's say, a Bobby Flay steak in under five minutes you know, piping hot, charred on the outside, a beautiful cut of a filet, or being able to cook a pizza perfectly in like three minutes. That's like as good as you'd find in the best pizza place you've ever been to. So we've created 17 of these restaurant chains. So if you think about like creating a brick and mortar chain, how challenging it is, you have to find the real estate, you have to build it, you have to hope that you get enough revenue to cover your break even to make a margin. 
And if you guess wrong or the wrong location, it doesn't make money and then you're sort of sunk. Because the platform we created this uh, across these 17 chains is fungible. This, this, this truck um, is fungible across the 17 restaurants. We could basically go into an area, find out what the demand is for every one of these 17 restaurant chains, and then put the right amount of mobile restaurants to satisfy the demand perfectly. And if demand's down, you put a little less. Demand's more, you add a little more. So it's completely fungible. It allows you to scale really fast, but more importantly, match supply and demand perfectly so you don't have this problem that restaurants have, which is, is this the right location? So there are a lot of places we can go into now and give access to food that people can't currently get because it doesn't make sense for a brick and mortar. The hurdle rate is too high. You need 3 million in revenue to make this restaurant work. That's not 3 million of demand. That's okay. There's only 500,000 worth of demand. Great. We'll put two mobile restaurants in there. And now we satisfy the $500,000 worth of latent demand. So it, it really allows us to give people access to this incredible food that they can't get access to via restaurants because it doesn't make economic sense. We're also able to cut across you know, many different chains, everything from steak to pizza to burgers to Chinese to Indian, Thai, we can, Mexican. We can cut across all of them because we have one single fungible tech platform. And that'll also enable us to scale really fast as well. And will you be able to, will, will someone who has an idea for a restaurant be able to come to you and say, hey, can I use your infrastructure? And yeah, exactly. Aspiring chefs, rather than spending a you know, million dollars to open a restaurant, if you have a restaurant idea, you can basically come up with a menu, get one mobile restaurant, go out on the road. We'll tell you exactly how many orders you'll do in a night based on, we, we just sort of know based on the algorithms. If that goes well, then you lease another truck. And then a third truck and a fourth truck. And you have four mobile, five mobile restaurants, six mobile. And you can build your restaurant that way, one piece at a time. What's the benefit to me as, let's say, someone with a restaurant idea of doing that as opposed to leasing space in a ghost kitchen and then using Uber Eats to deliver my food if there's demand? Yeah. Well, first of all, because you're in sort of a fixed location, right? But the biggest reason is the quality of the food. If you're an aspiring chef, you really want your food sitting cold in a bag in a car to deliver 15 or 20 minutes to somebody. Like that's the main thing. You want the quality of the food degrades pretty quickly when it's delivered and only certain types of food deliver. But let's say you wanted to do something like, I don't know, you wanted to do an oyster bar. You're really going to do an oyster bar from a ghost kitchen and put them in a bag and send, like it, that doesn't make sense. Same thing with steak, same thing with French fries. You know, there's some things that travel decently, but most stuff doesn't. You, let's say you want to do a bonefish grill type concept and have grilled fish. Are you going to do that in a ghost kitchen and put it in the back of a, a car and drive it? You know. So the other thing is, and people don't realize this, is that the actual delivery cost of from a ghost kitchen is a lot more expensive because you're going point to point. So let's say the ghost kitchen is in a fixed location. You have to drive to the ghost kitchen, pick up the stuff, and then drive, let's say it could be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or 20 minutes away. When you're mobile, just go point to point. Like the average drive time right now is only about eight minutes um, and it's coming down. The more density, the more the drive time comes down. And it's very, very different from delivering from a fixed location. How's it going so far? I mean, you're, you've rolled out in a couple of towns. Like what's going on? Yeah, it's going incredible. It, it, I mean, it's, it, we're seeing unprecedented results. The net promoter score is something we've never seen before, like mid to high 70s. People absolutely love it. Um, where people are ordering, you know, the repeat rates are off the charts. People are ordering like crazy. It's like a phenomenon in the areas that we're in. 
So yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have imagined that it would be going this well. I thought people would be interested in it, but not not to this extent. Do you see this in every city, in every town? I want this in my town. I do. I do. And you know what? It's funny. I've never really been in, involved in a business where any single person I talk to says, why wouldn't I do that? I want that. You know, then you know you've got a big TAM. And that's what's exciting about this idea. It's got a big TAM. Everyone wants it. But more importantly, it's very profitable. And so I've been involved in Jet, and diapers, and Walmart, and Amazon, and things where you're dealing with these razor thin, you know, two, three, four percent operating margin is really good. You know what I mean? This has the opportunity for double digit operating margins or more. Like it's very profitable when you vertically integrate and the food only costs, you know, 20 to 25 percent of the of the revenue. So it's exciting on TAM and it's exciting on on the profit side as well. Yeah, because and also again, it's it's weird how COVID has changed kind of the mindset of startups like this because let's say I think let's say I have a restaurant idea and and of course I'm thinking what major city should I go to to launch a restaurant? I'm not thinking that way anymore because hundreds of thousands of restaurants went out of business in the past two years in, in major cities. And so I have to be more flexible about and more experimental about how I start up a restaurant, even if my idea is great. And it sounds like this is a perfect platform to even think about starting a restaurant within. Absolutely. And like, there's no downside at all. Like you're like a restaurant. Again, the biggest risk is you make the real estate investment, you build a restaurant, your break even is $3 million of revenue and you're doing two and you're like, Oh, if I can just get another million, I make some money, but you can't. And it closes down. This is much simpler. It's each truck can do $200,000 a year. So you do one truck, 200,000. Oh, it's 400,000. Put a second truck. Oh, it's 600,000. Put a third truck. Like you literally just match the CapEx with the, with the demand. So by definition, you're going to be profitable. Like the math will work. You just need yeah. to, to be smart, have a good menu. And obviously the, the demand for your restaurant will depend on, um, and order density will drive drive times. But we've seen some restaurants, even with low order density, they have high ticket size work really well and still be very profitable. So um, yeah, I do think this is the future of, of restaurants and restaurant chains uh, in the same way that you know the future of retail was the actual goods coming to your door. This is the same. It's in the future of you know, restaurants as they come to you. I do think people socially though will still go out to restaurants. I don't we're not taking away from people that want to just have a, a social evening out. But when it comes to like on a day-to-day basis, eating food, yeah. Why would you not just want to have the restaurant? It could also be an alternative model for a restaurant. So a restaurant could say, okay, on the one place where our location where people go to, on the other hand, we're a kitchen where we're gonna use you know, wonders food trucks to deliver our great food to people who don't want to go out. Yeah, exactly. And it's high quality. The restaurants love it because the food quality stays. There's nothing worse than being like a proud chef and having a great restaurant and having people say, oh yeah, it didn't taste great. Because yeah, because it sat in, in the back of a courier car for 30 minutes. And that's very frustrating. Um, th- this offers an alternative where you know the food's going to be super high quality because it's literally cooked right outside the customer's door. So you're involved in in so many things. I have to ask about the Minnesota Timberwolves. I know you you are not taking ownership for uh, a while now, but you recently bought them with your with your partners. And I always wonder, like when someone buys a team like that, do you have to think to yourself, okay, this is how I can improve the team? They've been working on it for 
50 years to improve this team, but I have my new ideas about how to improve it. Like what, what, how do you, how do you visualize improving a team like that? Yeah. I mean, sort of A-Rod and I, you know, who, who bought, I bought it with A-Rod, we um, are approaching it the same way we would sort of a, a typical startup, which is apply the, the VCP framework. Uh, I've created vision capital people and really going in and building the foundation day one. What is the vision? What do we want to be in 10 to 15 years? What is the strategy to get there? What's the right organizational structure to support that strategy? What's the culture we want to create? What is the mission of the organization? What are its values? What are the behaviors and traits we look for in people we hire? What's the capital plan? What do the projections look like? What's the, the, the pitch deck to basically pull all this together to get everyone fired up inside the organization and outside that we've got a plan forward? Like it's building that foundation. And we've been since July doing just that and going through the whole sort of foundational process. I believe most of the mistakes made, if not all the mistakes made, whether it be any organization, a team, a company, is to start making moves before you've done the hard foundational work. Like how do you let somebody go and hire somebody if you don't know the culture and the type of people and the traits that you value and what's important to you? How do you build and hire someone when you don't know what the right organizational structure is? And you don't know what the right organizational structure is until you know what the strategy is. So it's like it's these building blocks that you need to get in place first and then everything just starts to roll so smoothly from there. And so like, let's say when I, when I think of any team, basketball, baseball, football, and I see new owners come in, I always figure, okay, they're going to throw money at it to buy great players to win championships, which seems like, and, and to be frank, like an old model. And I'm, I'm just wondering yeah. what uses of, for instance, I haven't seen that much with kind of money ball style statistics or machine learning applied to basketball. You see it in baseball. It's harder in football. Yeah. I imagine it's even harder in basketball. Uh, you know, like in, yeah. in, in baseball, you could say uh, a player who walks a lot is more valuable than a player who hits a lot of home runs. And that changes the way you do drafting. But I wonder, uh, what, are you looking into this for basketball? Yeah, I think there's a really big opportunity. I think, like you said, it's a little more nascent than it is in baseball, for example. But there's a really big opportunity, especially since you've got salary cap in, in basketball. It gets a lot harder, you know, where you have only a certain amount of money. You can you have to make sure each dollar you're getting the right amount of wins per dollar. Otherwise, the math doesn't add up and you're not going to win the number of games you hope for. So I actually think that analytics and this money ball concept could even be more valuable in basketball than, than some other sports. Yeah, like what kind of data have you already seen that surprised you and what kind of data are you looking for? I mean, nothing like specific. I think this is sort of still early days, but you know, everything like it's not looking past just the box score. There's lots of things that are happening that don't get accounted for in the box score that need to get accounted for, whether it be on defense, where you are, like positioned, how you box people out, how you set a pick and roll. You know, was it a contested shot? Was it an open shot that you made or missed? Like there's all these details, uh, even, even, you know, the accuracy of shooting, you know, people don't take enough shots for it to be statistically significant. And so you have to look at the arc and trajectory of the ball, you know, how did it hit the rim? Did it go, was it a swish? Like what, what is the accuracy to try to make a determination of like how good of a shooter somebody is? Because like, even if you flip the coin, if you flip the coin, you, we know it's 50, 50 over the long term, but you can flip a coin thousands of times, 10,000 times, and you can land on, you know, 49% and 51 
when you know it's 50-50, but you haven't had enough reps, think about in basketball, you don't take that many shots to really figure out whether somebody, like how good of a three-point shooter are they? And to really be able to figure that out when somebody only has, you know, let's say you know, 200 shots, think about that. It's like a very hard problem because if you're looking at straight percentage, you're going to get it wrong because 200 shots could be off by three, four, five, six, seven points. Somebody could be shooting 33% from three when really they're a 40% shooter or somebody could shoot 45 and really they're a 38. Like it, there's a big variation. And so you have to figure out how do you correct for that with analytics by looking at like shots, the type of shots they take, the, like I said, the trajectory of the ball, the arc, where it lands into the basket, things like that to try and suss out what their true shooting percentage is. And I guess also like, is for instance, three point shots correlated with number of wins? Like what's the importance of, should you shoot more, should you aim for more three point shots or less three point shots? So are those players even valuable for, for winning more? We, you don't know. No, that's it. No, but that's all part of it too. It's, it's figuring out at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out what some players contribution to wins is at the end of the day, it's wins above replacement concept that you have that everyone has been tracked pretty well in baseball for a long time now. It's, it's pretty new in basketball, um, but I think it could be a lot better. I think there's a lot of upside to really getting, but, but it's more than just figuring out, like in, in baseball, you have so many discrete at-bats that you can, you know, in one year, you could have 600 at-bats. You start statistically to be able to know like how good a player is because they've got so many discrete, you know, at-bats and the at-bats look the same for every player. In basketball, it's very different. I mean, you don't really have that same level of, of discrete shooting, right? It, right? It's like players could be, you know, double teamed. They could be contested more, sometimes not. It's like there's, there's, and, and they're not taking nearly as many shots, not taking them from the same location. It's just much more complicated. There's also like maybe feet run or yards run per, you know, per game. So, you know, some players might be great in the first five minutes that they're running around, but after a certain number of yards, they can't shoot anymore. And you don't know that either. Yeah. And that's that makes that's another factor. Yeah. That's another factor. You're giving Absolutely. me so many ideas for startups that I'm going to build and then sell to you. This is great. <laughs> great. Great. But, uh, <laughs> don't what, tell what, anyone, build them. In. <laughs> right. But one, one other question I have is like in with the Timberwolves, if, if I buy a ticket, let's say I buy season tickets and it costs hypothetically $200. And then I sell it to a scalper for $400. A scalper sells it someone for $500. The Timberwolves only make money when they sell to me. They don't make money off of the secondary and tertiary transactions that just happened. I wonder if you consider wrapping tickets in NFTs to keep track of the royalties on all secondary sales. Yeah, well, we, we just, uh, Alex and I just started a company called Jump. And uh, it's basically a, a, a next-gen sort of ticketing platform that we're going to test with the Timberwolves. And um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to give too much away, but it's something we're definitely thinking about. I, I think there's there's definitely a future, like next-gen ticketing platform that just, I, I don't want to give too too much away. There's there's an opportunity there. Yeah, it's interesting because I always look at the, at the crypto stuff and think, okay, when's there going to be real-world use cases as opposed to crypto buying other crypto and back and forth and back and forth. And this seems to me like a multi-billion dollar real world use case, something like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Well, and, and I guess finally, how do you have the energy to do all of these completely disparate things? Like, is everything fully delegated or how involved are you I do. every day? In- no, I'm really involved in those things, but I, you know, I, I love sleep because I think that gives you energy. So I get good eight hours every day, you know, work out, eat healthy. And if you've got 16 hours, non-sleeping hours in a day, if you're really efficient with your time and you outsource anything that's not pertaining to things that are really like these sort of big, big concepts, you have actually a lot of time in the day to do stuff. Most, most time, if you kind of like just mapped out your time, you're doing a lot of things that, you know, could be outsourced or aren't that relevant. Or, you know, I don't spend any time, you know, dwelling on the past. I don't spend time worrying about things. I don't, you know, like I just, I'm just, laser focused on the things that really matter. And I outsource anything that sort of, um, you know, like chores and anything that could be, right. could get in the way, you know, I wish I could outsource all my television watching. That would save me a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Mark, Laurie, thanks so much. You are always so creative and filled with ideas and you're working on such amazing, interesting projects. We talked about four of them. Uh, from cities to vertical cars to basketball teams to a new model for for restaurants. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and let's stay in touch as as things happen. I'd love to see the next iteration. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Great questions, James. Thank you. All right, see you. Thank you. 